0: Chapter 35 part 2 of Tristram Shandy volume 2 This is a LibriVox recording all LibriVox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org recording by icy jumbo the life and opinions of tristram shandy gentlemen volume 2 by laurence stern chapter 35 part 2 This left room for the controversy to go on. It was maintained by the advocates of the ecclesiastic court that there was nothing to inhibit a decree, since the stranger, ex mero motu, had confessed he had been at the promontory of noses, and had got one of the goodliest, etc., etc. To this it was answered, it was impossible there should be such a place as the promontory of noses, and the learned be ignorant where it lay the commissary of the bishop of Strasbourg undertook the advocates explained this matter in a treatise upon proverbial phrases showing them that the promontory of noses was a mere allegoric expression importing no more than that nature had given him a long nose in proof of which with great learning he cited the underwritten authorities which had decided the point incontestably nonuli ex nostratibus eadem loquendi formula utun, quinimo et logistae et canonistae vide Parquet barne in d l provincial Constitute de conjec, vide vol lib four titul i n seven qua etiam in re conspire om de promontorio nas tichmac ff d tit 3 fol 189 passim Vide gloss de contrahend empt etc nec non j scrudre in cap para refut per totum cum his cons rever j tubal sentent et prov cap nine ff eleven twelve obiter vi et librum cui tit de terris et fras belg ad finem cum comment en bardi belg vide scrip argentoratens de antique ec in episc archiv, fid col per von Jacobum Coinshoven folio argent, 1583, praecip ad finem. Quibus ad rebuff in el obvenire de signif nom ff fol et de jure gent et civil, de protib aliena foid, per federa test joha luxius in prolegum quem velim videas de anali cap one two three vide idea had it not appeared that a dispute about some franchises of dean and chapter lands had been determined by it nineteen years before it happened i must say unluckily for truth because they were giving her a lift another way in so doing that the two universities of strasburg the Lutheran, founded in the year 1538 by Jacobus Sumis, Councillor of the Senate, and the Popish, founded by Leopold, Archduke of Austria, were, during all this time, employing the whole depth of their knowledge, except just what the affair of the abbess of Quedlingburg's placket-hole required, in determining the point of Martin Luther's damnation. The Popish doctors had undertaken to demonstrate a priori that from the necessary influence of the planets on the twenty-second day of October, 1483, when the Moon was in the twelfth house, Jupiter, Mars, and Venus in the third, the Sun, Saturn, and Mercury all got together in the fourth, that he must in course, and unavoidably, be a damned man, and that his doctrines, by a direct corollary, must be damned doctrines too. Hic mira satisque horrenda planetarum coetio sub scorpio asterismo in nona coeli statione quam Arabes religioni deputabant efficit Martinum Lutherum sacrilegum hereticum Christianae religionis hostem acerimum atque artque profanum ex horoscopi directioni ad Martis coetum religiosissimus obiit Ellos anima scalestissima ad infernus navigavit ab alecto tisiphone et megara flagelis igneis cruciata pereniter lucas gaureius in tractatu astrologico de preteritis multorum hominum accidentibus per examinatis in reading this my father would always shake his head by inspection into his horoscope where five planets were in coition all at once with Scorpio in the ninth house, with the Arabians allotted to religion, it appeared that Martin Luther did not care one stiver about the matter, and that from the horoscope directed to the conjunction of Mars they made it plain likewise he must die cursing and blaspheming, with the blast of which his soul, being steeped in guilt, sailed before the wind in the lake of hell-fire. The little objection of the Lutheran doctors to this was, that it must certainly be the soul of another man, born October 22nd, 83, which was forced to sail down before the wind in that manner, inasmuch as it appeared from the register of Islaben in the county of Mansfeld, that Luther was not born in the year 1483, but in 84, and not on the 22nd day of October, but on the 10th of November, the eve of Martinmas day from whence he had the name of Martin. I must break off my translation for a moment, for if I did not, I know I should no more be able to shut my eyes in bed than the abbess of Quedlingburg. It is to tell the reader that my father never read this passage of Slawkinburgius to my uncle Toby, but with triumph, not over my uncle Toby, for he never opposed him in it, but over the whole world. Now you see, Brother Toby, he would say, looking up, that Christian names are not such indifferent things. Had Luther here been called by any other name but Martin, he would have been damned to all eternity. Not that I look upon Martin, he would add, as a good name, far from it. Tis something better than a neutral, and but a little. Yet little as it is, you see it was of some service to him. My father knew the weakness of this prop to his hypothesis, as well as the best logician could show him. Yet so strange is the weakness of man at the same time, as it fell in his way, he could not for his life but make use of it. And it was certainly for this reason, that though there are many stories in Hafen Slauchenburgius's decades, full as entertaining as this I am translating, yet there is not one amongst them which my father read over with half the delight it flattered two of his strangest hypotheses together—his names and his noses. I will be bold to say he might have read all the books in the Alexandrian library, had not fate taken other care of them, and not have met with a book or passage in one which hit two such nails as these upon the head at one stroke. The two universities of Strasbourg were hard tugging at this affair of Luther's navigation the protestant doctors had demonstrated that he had not sailed right before the wind as the popish doctors had pretended and as every one knew there was no sailing full in the teeth of it they were going to settle in case he had sailed how many points he was off whether martin had doubled the cape or had fallen upon a lee shore, and no doubt as it was an inquiry of much edification at least to those who understood this sort of navigation They had gone on with it in spite of the size of the stranger's nose. Had not the size of the stranger's nose drawn off the attention of the world from what they were about? It was their business to follow. The abbess of Quedlingburg and her four dignitaries was no stop, for the enormity of the stranger's nose running full as much in their fancies as their case of conscience. The affair of their placket-holes kept cold. In a word, the printers were ordered to distribute their types all controversies dropped. T'was a square cap with a silver tassel upon the crown of it, to a nutshell to have guessed on which side of the nose the two universities would split. 'Tis above reason,' cried the doctors on one side. 'Tis below reason,' cried the others. 'Tis faith,' cried one. 'Tis a fiddlestick,' said the other. 'Tis possible,' cried the one. 'Tis impossible,' said the other. God's power is infinite cried the Nosarians. He can do anything.' "'He can do nothing,' replied the Anti-Nosarians, "'which implies contradictions.' "'He can make matter think,' said the Nosarians. "'As certainly as you can make a velvet cap out of a sow's ear,' replied the Anti-Nosarians. "'He cannot make two and two five, replied the Popish doctors. "'Tis false,' said their other opponents. "'Infinite power is infinite power,' said the doctors who maintained the reality of the nose it extends only to all possible things replied the lutherans by god in heaven cried the popish doctors he can make a nose if he thinks fit as big as the steeple of strasburg now the steeple of strasburg being the biggest and the tallest church steeple to be seen in the whole world the anti denied that a nose of five hundred and seventy-five geometrical feet in length could be worn, at least by a middle-sized man. The Popish doctors swore it could. The Lutheran doctors said, no, it could not. This at once started a new dispute, which they pursued a great way upon the extent and limitation of the moral and natural attributes of God. That controversy led them naturally into Thomas Aquinas and Thomas Aquinas to the devil. The stranger's nose was no more heard of in the dispute. It just served as a frigate to launch them into the gulf of school divinity, and then they all sailed before the wind. Heat is in the proportion to the want of true knowledge. The controversy about the attributes, etc., instead of cooling, on the contrary had inflamed the Strasburgers' imaginations to a most inordinate degree. The less they understood of the matter, the greater was their wonder about it. They were left in all the distresses of desire unsatisfied. Saw their doctors, the parchmentarians, the brassarians, the turpentarians, on one side, the popish doctors on the other, like Pantagruel and his companions in quest of the oracle of the bottle, all embarked out of sight. The poor Strasburgers left upon the beach. What was to be done? No delay! The uproar increased, every one in disorder, the city gates left open. Unfortunate Strasburgers! Was there in the storehouse of nature? Was there in the lumber-rooms of learning? Was there in the great arsenal of chance one single engine left undrawn forth to torture your curiosities and stretch your desires, which was not pointed by the hand of fate to play upon your hearts? I dip not my pen into my ink to excuse the surrender of yourselves, tis to write your panegyric. Show me a city so macerated with expectation, who neither eat, or drank, or slept, or prayed, or hearkened to the calls either of religion or nature, for seven-and-twenty days together, who could have held out one day longer. On the twenty-eighth the courteous stranger had promised to return to Strasbourg. 7,000 coaches. Slauchenbergius must certainly have made some mistake in his numeral characters. 7,000 coaches. 15,000 single-horse chairs. 20,000 wagons, crowded as full as they could all hold, with senators, councillors, syndics, beguines, widows, wives, virgins, canons, concubines, all in their coaches. The abbess of Quedlingburg, with the prioress, the deaness and the sub-chantress, leading the procession in one coach, and the dean of Strasbourg, with the four great dignitaries of his chapter, on her left hand, the rest following higglety-pigglety as they could, some on horseback, some on foot, some led, some driven, some down the Rhine, some this way, some that, all set out at sunrise to meet the courteous stranger on the road haste we now towards the catastrophe of my tale i say catastrophe cries slaukenbergius inasmuch as a tale with parts rightly disposed not only rejoiceth Gaudet in the catastrophe and the peripatia of a drama but rejoiceth moreover in all the essential and integrant parts of it it has its protasis epitasis catastasis its catastrophe, or peripatia, growing one out of the other in it, in the order Aristotle first planted them, without which a tale had better never be told at all, says Slawkenbergius, but be kept to a man's self. In all my ten tales, in all my ten decades, have I, Slawkenbergius, tied down every tale of them as tightly to this rule, as I have done this of the stranger and his nose from his first parley with the sentinel, to his leaving of the city of Strasbourg, after pulling off his crimson-satin pair of breeches, is the protasis, or first entrance, where the characters of the personae dramatis are just touched in, and the subject slightly begun. The epitasis, wherein the action is more fully entered upon and heightened, till it arrives at its state, or height, called the catastasis, and which usually takes up the second and third act, is included within that busy period of my tale, betwixt the first night's uproar about the nose, to the conclusion of the trumpeter's wife's lectures upon it in the middle of the grand parade, and from the first embarking of the learned in the dispute, to the doctors finally sailing away, and leaving the Strasburgers upon the beach in distress, is the catastasis, or the ripening, of the incidents and passions for their bursting forth in the fifth act. This commences with the setting out of the Strasburgers in the Frankfort Road, and terminates in the unwinding the labyrinth and bringing the hero out of a state of agitation, as Aristotle calls it, to a state of rest and quietness. This, says Hafen constitutes the catastrophe, or peripatia, of my tale, and that is the part of it I am going to relate. We left the stranger behind the curtain asleep. He enters now upon the stage. "'What dost thou prick up thy ears at? "'Tis nothing but a man upon a horse,' was the last word the stranger uttered to his mule. It was not proper, then, to tell the reader, that the mule took his master's word for it, and without any more ifs or ands let the traveller and his horse pass by. The traveller was hastening with all diligence to get to Strasbourg that night. "'What a fool am I!' said the traveller to himself when he had rode about a league farther, to think of getting into Strasbourg this night. Strasbourg, the great Strasbourg! Strasbourg, the capital of all Alsatia! Strasbourg, an imperial city! Strasbourg, a sovereign state! Strasbourg, garrisoned with five thousand of the best troops in all the world! Alas! if I was at the gates of Strasbourg this moment, I could not gain admittance into it for a ducat, nay, a ducat and a half, tis too much. Better go back to the last inn I have passed, than lie I know not where, or give I know not what." The traveller, as he made these reflections in his mind, turned his horse's head about, and three minutes after the stranger had been conducted into his chamber he arrived at the same inn. "'We have bacon in the house,' said the host, "'and bread.' and till eleven o'clock this night had three eggs in it. But a stranger, who arrived an hour ago, has had them dressed into an omelette, and we have nothing. Alas! said the traveller, harassed as I am, I want nothing but a bed. I have one as soft as is in Alsatia, said the host. The stranger, continued he, should have slept in it, for it is my best bed, but upon the score of his nose. He has got a deflection, said the traveller, "'Not that I know,' cried the host. "but 'tis a camp-bed, and Jacinta,' said he, looking towards the maid, imagined there was not room in it to turn his nose in. "'Why so?' cried the traveller, starting back. "'It is so long a nose,' replied the host. The traveller fixed his eyes upon Jacinta, then upon the ground, kneeled upon his right knee, had just got his hand upon his breast. "'Trifle not with my anxiety! said he, rising up again, "'Tis no trifle," said Jacinta, "'tis the most glorious nose." The traveller fell upon his knee again, laid his hand upon his breast. "'Then,' said he, looking up to heaven, "'thou hast conducted me to the end of my pilgrimage. "'Tis Diego." The traveller was the brother of the Julia, so often invoked that night by the stranger as he rode from Strasbourg upon his mule and was come, on her part, in quest of him. He had accompanied his sister from Valladolid across the Pyrenean mountains through France, and had many an entangled skein to wind off in pursuit of him through the many meanders and abrupt turnings of a lover's thorny tracks. Julia had sunk under it, and had not been able to go a step further than to Lyon, where, with the many disquietudes of a tender heart, which all talk of, but few feel, she sickened, but had just strength enough to write a letter to Diego, and having conjured her brother never to see her face till he had found him out, and put the letter into his hands, Julia took to her bed. Fernandez, for that was her brother's name, though the camp-bed was as soft as any one in Alsace, yet he could not shut his eyes in it. As soon as it was day he rose, and hearing Diego was risen too, he entered his chamber and discharged his sister's commission. The letter was as follows. Senor Diego, whether my suspicions of your nose were justly excited or not, 'tis not now to inquire. It is enough I have not had firmness to put them to farther trial. How could I know so little of myself, when I sent my duenna to forbid your coming more under my lattice? Or how could I know so little of you, Diego, as to imagine you would not have stayed one day in Valladolid to have given ease to my doubts? Was I to be abandoned, Diego, because I was deceived? Or was it kind to take me at my word, whether my suspicions were just or no, and leave me, as you did, a prey to much uncertainty and sorrow? In what manner Julia has resented this? my brother, when he puts this letter into your hands, will tell you. He will tell you in how few moments she repented of the rash message she had sent to you, in what frantic haste she flew to her lattice, and how many days and nights together she leaned immovably upon her elbow, looking through it towards the way which Diego was wont to come. He will tell you, when she heard of your departure, how her spirits deserted her, how her heart sickened, how piteously she mourned, how low she hung her head! O Diego, how many weary steps has my brother's pity led me by the hand languishing to trace out yours! How far has desire carried me beyond strength! And how oft have I fainted by the way and sunk into his arms, with only power to cry out, O my Diego! If the gentleness of your carriage has not belied your heart, you will fly to me, almost as fast as you fled from me, haste as you will, you will arrive but to see me expire. "'Tis a bitter draught, Diego, but, oh, tis embittered still more by dying un—' She could proceed no further. Slockenbergius supposes the word intended was unconvinced, but her strength would not enable her to finish her letter. The heart of the courteous Diego overflowed as he read the letter. He ordered his mule forthwith, and Fernandez's horse, to be saddled, and as no vent in prose is equal to that of poetry in such conflicts, chance, which as often directs us to remedies as to diseases. Having thrown a piece of charcoal into the window, Diego availed himself of it, and whilst the hostler was getting ready his mule, he eased his mind against the wall as follows harsh and untuneful are the notes of love unless my julia strikes the key her hand alone can touch the part whose dulcet movement charms the heart and governs all the man with sympathetic sway oh julia the lines were very natural for they were nothing at all to the purpose says slorkinbergius and tis a pity there were no more of them but whether it was that senor diego was slow in composing verses or the ostler quick in saddling mules is not averred. Certain it was that Diego's mule and Fernandez's horse were ready at the door of the inn before Diego was ready for his second stanza. So without staying to finish his ode, they both mounted, sallied forth, passed the Rhine, traversed Alsace, shaped their course towards Lyon, and before the Strasburgers and the abbess of Quedlingburg had set out on their cavalcade, had Fernández, Diego and his Julia crossed the Pyrenean mountains and got safe to Valladolid. Tis needless to inform the geographical reader that when Diego was in Spain it was not possible to meet the courteous stranger in the Frankfurt road. It is enough to say that of all restless desires, curiosity being the strongest, the Strasburgers felt the full force of it, and that for three days and nights they were tossed to and fro in the Frankfurt Road, with the tempestuous fury of this passion, before they could submit to return home. When, alas, an event was prepared for them, of all other, the most grievous that could befall a free people. As this revolution of the Strasburgers' affairs is often spoken of, and little understood, I will, in ten words, says Slawkenbergius, give the world an explanation of it, and with it put an end to my tale. Everybody knows of the grand system of universal monarchy, wrote by order of M. Colbert and put in manuscript into the hands of Louis XIV in the year 1664. four. 'Tis as well known that one branch out of many of that system was the getting possession of Strasbourg, to favour an entrance at all times into Swabia, in order to disturb the quiet of Germany and that in consequence of this plan Strasbourg unhappily fell at length into their hands. It is the lot of a few to trace out the true springs of this and such-like revolutions. The vulgar look too high for them, statesmen look too low, truth, for once, lies in the middle. What a fatal thing is the popular pride of a free city! cries one historian. The Strasburgers deemed it a diminution of their freedom to receive an imperial garrison, so fell a prey to a French one. The fate, says another, of the Strasburgers may be a warning to all free people to save their money. They anticipated their revenues, brought themselves under taxes, exhausted their strength, and in the end became so weak a people they had not strength to keep their gates shut, and so the French pushed them open. Alas, alas! cries Slockenberges, Twas not the French Twas curiosity pushed them open. The French indeed, who are ever upon the catch, when they saw the Strasburgers, men, women, and children all marched out to follow the stranger's nose, each man followed his own and marched in. Trade and manufactures have decayed and gradually grown down ever since, but not from any cause which commercial heads have assigned for it is owing to this only, that noses have ever so run in their heads that the Strasburgers could not follow their business. "'Alas! alas!' cries Slawkenbergius, making an exclamation. "'It is not the first, and I fear will not be the last fortress that has been either won or lost by noses.'" The End of Slawkenbergius's Tale End of Chapter 35, Part 2